Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Back in Revelation chapter 20, notice it says in verse 14 that death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. Now, it mentions hell there and realize there's a difference between hell and the lake of fire. Many people treat them as if they are the same thing. And it's true that in hell there is, there is torment as well. But hell is not the final place of these unbelieving dead. Hell itself is cast into the lake of fire. Hell is kind of like a, like a holding cell. And they're held there until this judgment can take place. And then the, that final place is the lake of fire. And notice that it is called the second death. Now, the first death is your physical death. That's, that's the first death. And uh, even, you know, even believers, uh, if the Lord tarries, will experience that first death. But this second death is an eternal death. Do you realize that everybody, when we talk about eternal life, life doesn't just mean existence, right? Everybody, believer and unbeliever alike, is going to exist somewhere for eternity. But these people aren't going to live in the lake of fire. They are going to die in the lake of fire. And they are going to eternally die in the lake of fire. It is an eternal death. Remember that death in the Bible never means to pass out of existence. Death means to be separated from something. And there's many different kinds of death in the Bible. Here it is an eternal separation from God. It's, you can't call it eternal life in the lake of fire. It's eternal death in the lake of fire. While the believers are going to have eternal life, these unbelievers have eternal death, and that is the second death. That is the, the death that is in view in Romans 6.23 when it says the wages of sin is death. Now certainly, certainly... Uh, Physical death is a result of sin in the world. There was no physical death in the world until sin entered through Adam. That's when death entered and death reigned. But, uh, um, you know, so physical death is related to sin. But when it says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, it's contrasting eternal life with eternal death and this second death is what is in view there in Romans 6.23. And so, so here it describes, again, as hell is cast into that lake of fire in that second death. And so all sin, these dead here, are the un, unbelieving dead of all ages. It's, it's the unbelieving dead of all dispensations. And they come there before that great white throne, and there are no believers at the great white throne. This is, this is not a judgment to separate between the believers and the unbelievers. That's already been done prior to this. This is a judgment 
to, to uh, determine that torment, that severity of that judgment for these unbelieving dead. And nobody comes, nobody that stands there before that great white throne is going to come away saved. Uh, the book of life is there to demonstrate to them that their names are not written there. Okay, that, that's why it's there. That's the evidence against them. And their works are the evidence against them. And they are cast there into that lake of fire. Essentially, what takes place there is those who refuse to accept, those who, who rejected the judgment that God poured out on his son, insist on bearing judgment themselves. You realize you can bear the judgment that you deserve from God and stand there before the great white throne and people are probably going to try and plead their case before that throne, but the evidence will be brought forth and the just sentence will be passed down. You can, if, if that's the, the gamble that you want to take, that you somehow, unlike all these others, will be able to make your case before God as, as to why... Um, you know, why you deserve not to go into that eternal judgment, uh, I suppose you're welcome to do that. But for me, I'll trust that the judgment I deserve was already poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he suffered as my substitute. There has to be a judgment either way. There has to be a judgment, and either Christ bore your judgment, or you can bear that judgment yourself. Now, once all that sin has been dealt with, then God, remember it says that the earth and heaven fled away from his face at that great white throne, so that in chapter 21 now of Revelation, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now, we started out in Isaiah where the Lord said he was going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and here we have that fulfilled. He can only create the new heaven and new earth at this time because he's, he's done away with that earth that was cursed by sin and even that heaven that was cursed by sin. I don't think that sin is something local to the earth. Remember that the devil and his angels were in heavenly places, right? And so the Lord here creates a new heaven and a new earth that is cleansed from all sin. And... It doesn't describe here in Revelation the judgment that takes place among the angelic hosts. But you see, the devil is cast there into the lake of fire, as will those angels that followed with him be cast into the lake of fire. And so all sin at this point then is contained in that lake of fire. So that God can create a new heaven and a new earth completely free from sin. Um. He creates this new heaven, this new earth. Um, notice it says in that new earth that there was no more sea. Now, as we looked at some of those passages about the millennial kingdom, um, as, I, as I pointed out in a few cases, um, you cannot put those things into that new earth because some of the descriptions are different. For instance, the passage in Ezekiel that describes the river that comes out from the sanctuary and flows down to the sea. Well, if there is no sea in the new earth, that can't be taking place in the new earth. It has to be taking place prior to that. Um, 
So that's one of the distinctions of that new earth is that there is no more sea. In verse 2, it says, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This, This earth is going to be inhabited, this new earth. It's going to be inhabited by uh, these believers. And there's a city. There will be many cities in that new earth. But this is going to be the capital city of the planet. This new Jerusalem that John sees descending from God out of heaven. And now that the earth is fit for the very presence of God... That city can descend down. Now that's a city that is in heaven today. In heaven there is this city, New Jerusalem, uh, in heaven today. And this earth isn't fit for that city of New Jerusalem. Um, it, it, you know, it, God's not going to bring it down to the, the earth today because the earth isn't a fit place for it. But in that new earth, that, that New Jerusalem comes down and you see it describes the city as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3, it says, I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. By the way, in the millennial kingdom, Christ is is reigning on the earth. But, but if you remember, at the end of that that millennial reign when Satan was loosed and those armies come again. It says fire came down from God out of heaven. God the Father in that millennial kingdom is still up in heaven. But here in this new Jerusalem coming down, God the Father himself, his very presence, will be on the earth in this new Jerusalem. You see, God himself shall be with them and be their God. Verse 4, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. I will be his God. He shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And... Here that city comes down out of heaven. It says, a bride adorned. Uh, You see in verse 9, it says, There came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, you see here it describes the bride. And when you, when you read various commentaries about who the bride is, um, you know, many, most commentaries will just say, you know, believers in general are the bride, and they would cross-reference this certainly with passages that describe the relationship between Christ and believers as a, a marriage relationship. 
But that term bride, when used in a prophetic sense, has a very specific meaning. Okay? Now, like I say, most commentaries would say that, um, that the, you know, the bride is, is all believers or is the church. Um, some dispensationalists trying to make a, a distinction there, you know, as you read the description of this city, it has a lot to do with Israel. And they'll say, no, the bride is Israel. And try and make that distinction. And the problem, the problem with that is the Bible's very clear about who the bride is in these prophetic passages. And it's actually not the church and it's not Israel either. The bride is just who the scripture says the bride is. Let's look at a, a couple of passages. Go back to Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah chapter 49 Verse 14, just to get the context to see who's speaking and who it's speaking about, it says, but Zion said. Now, Zion is another name for Jerusalem. Zion is not a name for Israel as a whole. Zion is a name for Jerusalem. And uh, so when it says Zion said, it's speaking about Jerusalem. Uh, If you skip down to verse 18, so here's the Lord speaking to Zion, to Jerusalem, And he says, lift up thine eyes round about and behold, all these gather themselves together and come to thee. As I live, saith the Lord, thou shalt surely clothe thee with them all as with an ornament and bind them on thee as a bride doeth. Okay, go to Isaiah chapter 61 and see if you can find the pattern here. Actually, go to chapter 62 since we're almost out of time. Isaiah chapter 62, verse 1 says, For Zion's sake will I not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest, until the righteousness thereof go forth as the brightness and the salvation thereof, as a lamp that burneth. If you uh, come down to verse 4, it says, Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah, for the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. And the name Hephzibah means my delight is in her, and the name Beulah means married. And verse 5, for as a young man marrieth a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoiceth over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. You see what those passages have in common? They're, they're talking about Jerusalem, Zion, as the bride. You see here in Revelation... When the angel says to John, come, I'm going to show you the bride, the lamb's wife, what does he show him? Does he show him the, you know, this group of believers? Does he show him the nation of Israel? Does, no, he shows him a city, right? He shows him that city of New Jerusalem coming down to the earth. And that's an important thing to understand because, you know, if, if you make... Whether you make the bride believers in general or whether you make the bride Israel, you wind up with some problems typologically. Because in this, in this, you know, this bride and bridegroom symbolism, what place does John the Baptist play? Do you remember in the scripture? John the Baptist is called the friend of the bridegroom, right? 
He's the friend of the bridegroom. Well, John the Baptist is a believer in Christ. John the Baptist is a part of Israel. So if, if the bride is Israel, or if the bride is just believers in general, you would expect him to be a part of the bride. But he's called something different from the bride. You can't be the friend of the bridegroom and be the bride, right? But if you let the, the scripture mean what it says, that Jerusalem is the bride, then there's no problem with John the Baptist being the friend of the bridegroom. Because he's not Jerusalem. See, he can be the friend of the bridegroom, and Jerusalem can be the bride. Um, the disciples, Christ's disciples, are called the children of the bride chamber. Right? Now, you know, the, the just the way these passages are most commonly interpreted, with the bride just being believers in general, um, you would expect those disciples to be part of the bride. But they're called something different. They're the children of the bride chamber. Right? So if you let, just let the scripture mean what it says, and let the bride be who the scripture says it is, when the angel says, John, come, I'm going to show you the bride, he shows him a city. And it's this city of Jerusalem. Now, certainly that city is populated by believers. And, and none of that, understand, this term bride is a very specific prophetic term used in the Scripture. And none of that is to take away from the relationship between Christ and the church, which is likened to a marriage relationship. But even that, you have to, you, have to uh, you know, when you think about it in detail, how could... If the church is married to Christ right now today, which the scripture describes the present relationship between Christ and the church as a marriage relationship, how could they be his bride in the future? Right? You're married after you're the bride. You're the bride on the, on the wedding day. Uh, how could you be married after you're the, or how could you be the bride after you're already married? Do you, you see my point? The, the bride, the term bride is always used in these, in these prophetic passages to refer to Jerusalem and to refer to this is where um, this new Jerusalem is presented as the bride, the lamb's wife. And John goes on to give a, a fairly detailed description of that city of New Jerusalem. Uh, he describes the gates of the city. He describes the measurements of the city. And this is a massive city. As John describes it, it is, um, he says that it's four square in verse 16. Uh, he says, the city lieth four square and the length is as large as the breadth. He measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. And the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. Now, 12,000 furlongs, you can read that and not really think about how large that would be because who knows how long a furlong is. But 12,000 furlongs is approximately 1,500 miles, all right? That is the, the, the measurement of this city, that it's 1,500 miles square. And not only that, it's 1,500 miles high. It goes 1,500 miles up. Um, this is a, a massive city that John sees coming down to, to um, the earth, just for... Just for reference, I used to live in Daytona Beach, Florida, and from here to Daytona Beach, Florida is pretty close to 1,500 miles. Now, when you drive from here to Daytona Beach, you go through who knows how many cities. This is one city, right? This is one city with those dimensions. 
And that is the, the city that John sees that is called the bride. If you notice in verse 22, it says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Now there's another clue that what Ezekiel is describing in those closing chapters of Ezekiel is not the new earth because Ezekiel gives very detailed descriptions of a temple and this city has no temple in it. And this, this city, this, this period where this is taking place, this city comes down to the earth and that is the eternal state. You have this new heavens, uh, you know, a renewed heavens, a renewed earth And it's in those new heavens and new earth that we are going to spend eternity. In fact, the Apostle Paul describes this period of time, if you go back to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, we're we're breaking into a long sentence here in Ephesians, but Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9 says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, that's the mystery of God's will, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself, notice verse 10, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. You know that in your Bible you have two programs of God. There's an earthly program and there's a heavenly program. Um, In fact, the very first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Right? And, And you have that division all throughout Scripture between heaven and earth. And you know, when you're in the Old Testament and the focus is on Israel, the focus is on the earth. Even in the, the four Gospels, much of the focus is on the earth. What does Christ say in the, in the Beatitudes? The, the meek shall inherit what? Not heaven, but the earth, right? But when you get into Paul's epistles, you find this heavenly program. There Paul says our conversation is in heaven from whence we look for the Savior. He says we're seated in heavenly places in Christ. He says that the, the battle we're involved in is a heavenly battle. Uh, It's against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. And there's this focus on heavenly things. And you have an earthly program and you have a heavenly program. And here, Paul says, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, in that dispensation when all time is brought to its fullness, which is what John's describing there in that new heaven and new earth, that at that time, those two programs become one program. Right? He says he's going to gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. And you have that, that unity there between heaven and earth in that new earth and in that new heaven. And, you know, we could, we could spend a lot of time on this, on a lot of the details about that new Jerusalem and that new earth and the new heaven and who's going to be where and what what they're going to be doing. But suffice it to say that when you get there to the book of the the end of the book of Revelation, and when you read these passages like here in Ephesians one and, and Isaiah sixty five that talk about the new heaven and new earth, that is the eternal state. And that's where things are going to go on for eternity. We're going to be there in that renewed creation, serving the Lord for eternity. And 
sin is going to be something of the past. Isaiah 65 that we read at the beginning, it said that the former earth is going to be remembered no more. It's so going to overshadow this present world. You know, we can, we can go out in this present world and we can look at the creation and, it, and, it's, and it's beautiful and it still retains that image of the, the original creation. But we can't even imagine what that renewed earth is going to be like and what those new heavens are going to be like that we will have access to as well. And that city of New Jerusalem will be the, the capital city, not just of, of earth, but of all of all of the creation, the heaven and the earth, uh, in that city is where the throne room of God himself is. And, you know, as we, as we go out, you know, there's, we're not just going to, in eternity, just going to sit around all day doing nothing. God's going to have things for us to do. And we're going to come and go from that city. And that's where our orders are going to come from because that's where our king will be is there in that city of, of Jerusalem. And uh, the Apostle Paul says of, of that city, he says that the Jerusalem, which is above, it's above at present, is free. And he says it's the, the mother of us all. And, um, you know, as you, as you think about those things and you think about those promises, those things that are, are going to take place, for the, for the believer it's a matter of joy. But realize for the unbeliever, those, there's no access to those things. For the unbeliever, all there is for them is that great white throne and the lake of fire. And I, you know, I, I, I hope you'll take to heart those things today from God's word about the, the judgment of God. Uh, don't, don't presume that you are saved because you have some Bible verses memorized or because you go to church or because you do good things. Those are the things that aren't going to pass that, that uh, great white throne. But the, you know, the only way to avoid that judgment is to accept the judgment that was poured upon Christ, that he paid the complete price, that he took the equivalent, the equivalent of that lake of fire for eternity, and that's what Christ bore on the cross of Calvary in his suffering. He bore the equivalent he paid the equivalent of that for all mankind. And you can either accept that as your judgment, or you can choose to bear that judgment yourself at the, at the judgment or at the uh, great white throne. And, you know, accepting what Christ did is, is just a matter of faith. It's not a matter of repeating a prayer. It's not a matter of, of uh, walking an aisle or, you know, filling out a card or anything like that. It's, it's a matter of where do you put your trust? Do you put your trust in yourself, your own ability, your own actions? Or do you believe what the Scripture says when it says that, that He was made to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him? And that eternal life is a gift that God gives. And um, it's... It, again, it's just a matter of faith in what Christ accomplished. The scripture says that the wages of sin is death. That's what we owe to God. That's what we deserve from God for our sin is that second death in the lake of fire. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you've never received that gift of eternal life, won't you, won't you receive it today? Again, it's, it's just a matter of... of uh, placing your faith and accepting what Christ did on that cross of Calvary and 
rejecting your own works or your own ability or, or anything about yourself as the means of salvation. And let's close with prayer. Lord God, we thank you for these things that you're going to do with, with absolute faith, that you will perform it. And we thank you for what you have done in sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. I pray for any here that have questions about their eternal life, don't know if they are saved, don't know if they've, if they've trusted uh, that message of, of eternal life in Christ. And uh, I pray that they would seek out from your word and, and uh, you know, seek out those answers regarding that eternal life. I pray that, that none would just assume that they are saved um, on the basis of, of their works or their upbringing or, or their church or any of those things. But um, we just thank you for what the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished for us, knowing that he paid it all. He paid the total and complete payment that was necessary for our eternal life. And uh, we thank you for that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.